Welcome to the class. My name is Bill Combs. Everybody got a copy of the notes there, the first page, at least the first front and back. This is uh, how we got our Bible. And we'll begin. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the time we have together today and for this session, uh, these weeks. We pray you'll help give us, a, give us an, a greater appreciation of the scripture that has been handed down to us. And we have the privilege of having in our own language. This is a great thing that uh, people have longed for, people have died for, and yet we enjoy it uh, in abundance. So we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we begin today, and uh, we hope we're going to try to cover uh, the material in the front and the back and so forth. So we're starting at the beginning, the writing of the scripture, and we're going to end up at the NIV, the Bible that we use in church here at CBC. I want to talk first of all about, I love to talk this thing with go, but there he goes, about that, uh, the importance of the Bible. Um, the Bible is important, obviously, we understand all this, because it is the Word of God. It's the very Word of God. And as I said, uh, People over the ages have lived and died so that we can have the Word of God in our own language. We will study um, William Tyndall quite a bit a little later in our class because Tyndall was the first great translator of the Bible into English. And uh, he uh, was burned at the stake in 1536 because he dared to translate the Bible into English. Before his time, at his time, come in, there's some notes right on the front there. Grab a copy there. Um, at his time and before his time, it was illegal in England to have a copy of the scriptures in the English language. It was available in Latin but that was just for people who were allowed to own a copy in Latin. Uh, priests, churchmen, church people, members of the Church of England or the Roman Catholic Church. And when he died, supposedly, according to Fox, Fox's Book of Martyrs, his last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And that did happen. The King of England, Henry VIII, did grant uh, permission for the Bible to be translated into English and brought into English churches. But it was the work of William Tyndall that had a big part in that. So there have been many people who have been martyred to try to bring the Bible into the common language. Yes? Was it because they were, they didn't want people to know what the word said? Well, there's a variety of reasons, yes. Uh, you, there, there is a, one line of thinking that, and there's evidence that they didn't want, the, the main reason was most people were sort of uneducated. Oh, yeah. And the idea was they'll misinterpret. That was the theory, misinterpret. And in the Roman Catholic Church, the church is the interpreter of Scripture. And so if you're in the Roman Catholic Church, 
uh, you don't really have the right to read the Bible. Inter- you have the right to read the Bible. Now, they encourage to read the Bible, but you don't have the right to interpret the Bible for yourself. We believe in what's called the priesthood of the believer, individual soul liberty. So, I mean, we listen to our pastor. He's a leader. He's put there for a purpose, but we have to read that and, and get it ourselves. But not in the Roman Catholic Church. The church is the interpreter of the Bible. I remember hearing the famous uh, uh, William F. Buckley. I don't know if you invite me to name William F. Buckley. He's a very famous uh, political writer, writer, philosopher. He's really credited, credited in the 1950s with starting the conservative movement. And I say, talking about political conservatives. It was his magazine, National Review, that really started all this going in the 1950s. But I heard him once say, and he was a Roman Catholic, many conservative political people are Roman Catholics. You know? I heard him say one time, I leave the exegetical function to the church. Now, it's very interesting. He's a brilliant man. He wouldn't leave the exegetical function of the Constitution to the Supreme Court. In other words, he, 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 he believed in arguing about what the Constitution said, arguing about what law said, but he said, I just clear my mind. I don't even think about what the Bible says. I let the church interpret the Bible, and I just believe what they said. And that's what the church has, has done now through the ages. So the idea that one thing that kept people from understanding the Bible and interpreting themselves, it was in Latin. Most people spoke English, the common people. So first of all, you've got to get the Bible translated in the common language. And so there was a there was a feeling we shouldn't do that because then we'll have all kinds of people raising questions about what we do and what we say and believe and so forth. So in a way, it was a form of control, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay. It was, sure. So let's talk about uh, how did the Bible become the Word of God. So we're starting at the beginning. How did the Bible become the Word of God? And it came, the word became the Word of God through what we call inspiration. Inspiration. We've all heard of the inspiration of Scripture. So first of all, I want to talk about the definition of the word inspiration. It's derived from the Latin term inspiro. The Bible, when it was first translated from the original Greek and Hebrew, the first one of the first languages, practically the first language it was translated into, was the language of the Roman Empire, Latin. And Latin became the most important language for the Bible for the next 1,000 years. Latin used to be a very important language. When I went to school, I took four years of Latin in high school. It was extremely important to know Latin. Medical doctors had to know Latin. When I went to college, you had to know Latin. I was going in engineering, electrical engineering, but you had to know Latin. And... Uh, if you, and even in the 19th century, all government documents in Britain were in Latin. So Latin was, was the first translation of the Bible. It was an extremely important uh, translation. The, the translation was called the Vulgate, done by a man not by Jerome. We'll learn about him later. But when he translated 2 Timothy 3.16, when he translated that verse, remember the King James says, all scripture is given by inspiration or the Bible is inspired. When he translated that word theopneustos there in 2 Timothy 3.16, we'll look at later, he translated it with the Latin word inspiro, inspire. And so our English 
word inspiration comes from his Latin translation of inspiro, which means to breathe in. Um, we want to look at the definition of the doctrine of inspiration. I've given you just a simple definition there. I tried to summarize it as briefly as I could, and I said, God's superintendence of the writers of Scripture, so they wrote the Word of God. And most definitions are something along that line. Here's Ryrie in his study Bible, Charles Ryrie. He says, inspiration is God's superintending. So, doctrines, uh, explanations of inspiration will often use the word superintend because writers were superintended. They were, uh, they were superintended in the sense that they weren't robots. They thought for themselves. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, he was writing to some people in Rome. He was writing a real letter. But God was ultimately in control. God was superintending the writing of the human authors. So, Robbie says, so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error in the words of the original autographs is revelation to man. So when Paul wrote Romans to the Romans, as you read this morning, Paul was writing a real letter to people in Rome using his words, but God was superintending that so that it was what God wanted. It was the word of God. Now when you read Romans, you can see it differs from John's writing, especially in the original languages. John's Greek is different than Paul's Greek because he's different. He's a different person. And Luke's Greek is different than Paul's Greek when he writes. So they write with their own personalities, but God is superintending this so that it comes out, it produces this God-breathed book, the Bible. Um, what is the evidence for inspiration? How do we know the Bible is what I just said it is? Well, the main text, of course, is... 2 Timothy 3.16 and many of us are familiar with the King James Version all scripture is given by in the, given by inspiration of God the New American Standard Bible says all scripture is inspired by God so they're both using that similar language the King James says given by inspiration the New American Standard Bible says all scripture is inspired by God and as I say here this phrase this phrase, uh, given by inspiration or inspired by God, is more literally one word in the Greek, this theopneustos. Uh, you have to learn a little Greek in this class. I didn't, I didn't tell anybody before you signed up for this class. <laughs> but it, it, you know, you've got to, you have to just learn a little Greek here. So it's just fun. It will be fun. But this, this word, theopneustos, theopneustos, you can see the word theos there, God. You've probably heard people use that term theos, God. And the nuostos part is like breath or spirit or wind. So God breathed. So literally it means something like God breathed. How did it get to be inspired? Because in the Latin Vulgate, Jerome, the translator, translated that Greek word inspiro. And then he came into English as inspiration. So we talk about the doctrine of inspiration. Now, inspiro really, uh, or theopneustos, doesn't really mean so much to breathe in as it means to breathe out. So you look at more modern translations, like the NIV, it says, all scripture is God-breathed. It's all one word there, 
theanoustos, but they're translating it here, God-breathed. It's God-breathed or inspired, it's the same thing. The ESV says all scripture is breathed out by God. So breathed out by God, God-breathed. That's the idea of the word here. So that's some of the evidence for this doctrine of inspiration, that the Bible is God-breathed, it's, there's, it's a work of, it's a divine human book, God and man, God in control. Uh, what about uh, inspiration, copies, and translations? I say here in your notes, inspiration is ultimately confined to only the original writings themselves, what are called the autographs. The original writings, the technical term sometimes, is called the autographs. And so I'm saying that in a technical and ultimate sense, inspiration is confined to what Paul wrote. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, that's what was inspired. When Moses wrote the book of Genesis, that's what was inspired. God was breathing that out when Moses wrote and when Paul wrote. And Paul says this, like in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. He says, if anyone thinks that they are a prophet are otherwise gifted by the Lord, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. Paul says, it's what I am writing to you. What I'm writing to you, that is the Lord's command. What Paul wrote is inspired. Now, when I say here, inspiration, copies, and translations, copies are not technically inspired in the sense that Paul wrote Romans. If somebody made a copy of that, it's the original that's inspired. If somebody made a copy of that, they could make a spelling error, couldn't they? Every time somebody made a copy of the book of Romans, and people did, it doesn't. God didn't guarantee that they would spell every word correctly. They might leave out a punctuation mark. They might leave, leave out something, right? They might even misspell something. And they did. They obviously did the same thing with translations. So when we talk about inspiration, we're primarily confining this to the original writings, the autographs. Now, we often speak of accurate copies, accurate translations as inspired in sort of a secondary derivative sense because, because accurate copies, accurate translations they preserve the essential message of the Bible. So in our Bibles we have in churches here, they, they preserve the essential message. They're, they're basically accurate. We don't think there's a bunch of errors or anything in it. But ultimately, it's those original, you know, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the, in the New Testament. It's ultimately those documents that are, in the final sense, the inspired copies. And see, now you've really got to get into the Greek here now. This example came up in our Acts class, so I thought I would mention it here, because I think it's a good example of what we're talking about here. How that we ultimately always have to go back to the original inspired language, the original. In Matthew 27, 65, there's this word, ekate. Can you say that, ekate? Okay, now you know some Greek, ekate. <laughs> But you remember the scene here in Matthew 27. Jesus has been crucified. And he's been buried in a tomb. 
He's been placed in a tomb, uh, which is basically a uh, something that's been cut out of a stone, a, a, a tomb that's been cut out of some sort of limestone or something. It's like a cave kind of thing with a stone rolled over it. For about 100 years in the time of Jesus, about maybe years before and years after, the way they buried people is they would put the body in a tomb and they would let the body rot for a number of years. When the flesh had fallen off, they would take the bones out and put them in a box, a burial box. So you'd find in Jerusalem all kinds of burial boxes with these bones in them. And uh, that's what was going to happen to Jesus' body. He was placed in the tomb. Uh, Joseph said, I've got this new one that I haven't even used. No one's even used. But it's a family tomb. Every time somebody dies, they put you in there. The body decays. You take the bones out and put them in a box. So Jesus is put there. And the Pharisees and the chief priests come to Pilate. And they say, Pilate, in Matthew 27 here, they say, remember this deceiver? They call Jesus the deceiver. They say, remember this deceiver? When he was alive, he said that he would, when he died, he would raise, he would, he would rise in three days. That he would be resurrected in three days. Well, we know that's just a bunch of nonsense. But these disciples, they're likely to come and steal the body away and say, and then they'll say, Jesus has risen, and then we'll have a greater era than we had when he was here on earth. It'll just be a big mess. And so they come to Pilate, and Pilate says, okay. And he says one of two things. Well, actually, he says, he says, ekete. But the problem with ekete, the Greek word here, is it, it can mean two different things. It seems difficult. It seems impossible, maybe, that it can have these different meanings. But it can mean the word, it can be an imperative. It can be a command. It can mean take or grab. So Pilate could be saying, take a car. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as serious you know. So Pilate could be saying, take a guard. Take some soldiers and go make the tomb as secure as you can. He could be saying that. That's what the NIV says. He could be giving a statement. It could be an indicative or a statement. He could be saying, you have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know. It could be saying, you have a guard. In other words, he could be saying, take some soldiers. And some people think that means take some of my Roman soldiers and go, which is possible. He could be saying, you have a guard. You have some soldiers. These uh, religious leaders had soldiers. They had a Levitical police force in the temple, and they could take some of those soldiers and go guard the tomb. So it could be one of those two. Well, which one is it? Well, it's Ekatech. <laughs> That's what Matthew wrote. That's what's inspired, Ekatech. You know. So is, is the NIV the inspired text or the New American Standard? No, Ekatech is the inspired text. See the point here? And you see this in our pastor. You've heard him preach through Genesis. And he would often say, the Hebrew says this. I know your NIV says this, right? But the Hebrew says this. Remember that? He would say the Hebrew word here and the Hebrew word here. He wasn't bound to the English translation. He was looking back at the original autographic language, the Hebrew, and saying the Hebrew could also mean this and so forth. So that's when we say the Bible's inspired. We mean the originals. We mean the original languages. That's what's inspired. Translations are very good. And this doesn't make much difference, does it? It's not no huge, great difference whether 
Her, uh, whether Powell is saying, well, take some soldiers, or you have some soldiers, or take some of your own soldiers and go guard the tomb. It's, it's not a great deal of difference, but the point is, we always have to go back to the originals, original languages. That's what's inspired. Let's talk about the designations of the Bible. What are the names of the Bible? We're very familiar with these, so we don't need to spend much time on that. <clears throat> we use the term Bible, and that comes from the Greek word biblos, which simply means book, because the Bible is the book. It's the most important book to us. Uh, we use the term scripture. That comes from the Greek word graphe. As you can see, our, a lot of English words, gra- graphic, graphite, come from graphe. It just means writing. So scripture means writing. So sometimes we refer to the Bible as the Bible, and a synonym is scripture, isn't it? It means the writing. It's used uh, in the New Testament. The word scripture is used for both the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures. Paul says, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Graphe, in the Holy Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament, isn't he, there? Jesus was promised in the Old Testament scriptures. So scripture is sometimes applied to the Old Testament. And Peter uses it of Paul's writings. He calls Paul's writing scriptures. It's an interesting verse. He says, he, that is Paul, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. That is, they distort Paul's writings. He doesn't say they distort Paul's writings just like they do scripture. He says they distort Paul's writings just like they do the other scriptures. Paul's writings are scripture, he says. So graphe means scripture. We use Bible and scripture interchangeably. We use the term word of God. That's interchangeable. The term is used in both the Old Testament and New Testament for revelation that comes from God. Now, most of the time in the Bible, word of God refers to the word of God in oral form and not in written form. It's, if you look at all the times the phrase word of God, even the New Testament, it's usually talking about something spoken, but sometimes written. And I cited a couple verses here in Exodus. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. That's writing. The word of God is written there. And also John 10, 35. Jesus refers to this. The Bible is all called, also called the Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament and New Testament. This comes from Latin terms. Remember, I talked about, and we'll talk, talk about this a lot, the most first translation of the Bible, and one of the most important ones was in Latin, the Latin Vulgate especially. And so... Uh, the Old Testament is called the Old Covenant. The New Covenant, when that's translated into Latin, it becomes Vetus Testamentum or Vetus Testamentum and Noam Testamentum, and that's where we get our English terms. So a lot of the stuff we have, in the, a, lot of, a lot of our terminology comes from Latin because Latin was the dominant language. And so uh, our terms Old Testament and New Testament come from the Latin Old Covenant or Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. And so the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, New Testament make up the Bible. So these are terms that we commonly use. The question is, how do we know which book should be in the Bible? How do we know that the 66 books we have in our Bibles here are the right books? Shouldn't there be 67? Or should maybe there should be 65? How do we know 
these 66 are the correct number of books? That's a technical question called canonicity. So canonicity, canonicity deals with the question of what books should be or not be in the Bible. As I say here, the word canon means a rule or standard by which something is judged. The word canon originally was used of a measuring stick, a yardstick, tape measure, and you use that to measure to see if something is right within the standard and so forth. So a book that's said to be canonical is judged to be worthy to be included in the Bible. So canonicity has to do with the question of what book should be in the Bible. A book that's canonical is a book that should be in the Bible. So Romans is in the canon. It's canonical. Um, the definition of the word uh, canon, definition of canonicity. I say here in your notes, canonicity is the historical process by which the Spirit of God led the church to recognize those writings that were genuinely inspired. This historical process produced the canon we have today. So the books were written in the first century, beginning in the 50s. Some question about what book was written first. Was it Matthew written first or Mark written first? Probably one of the Gospels. Paul writes his his uh, uh, letter to the Galatians uh, you know, pretty pretty early, maybe as early as fifty forty nine, possibly. Uh, difficult to know. So right there around the fifties, we have the, the books written, and the church believers churches went through a process of recognizing and identifying these books uh, going through this canonical process. Now, canonicity and inspiration. Let's talk about the relationship between canonicity and inspiration. As I say in your notes, it's not the canonizing process that makes the books inspired. It's not the, it's not the, it's not the canonizing process that makes the books inspired. They were inspired the moment... They came from the hands of the authors. So when Paul wrote Romans, he finished that, sent it off to the Roman church. It's an inspired book. It was eventually collected and included in the 27 books in the New Testament. But remember at first, all those books weren't written at one time. They were written at separate times individually. So it's not the process of collecting it that made it inspired. No, they were collected and put into the canon that we have. So, inspiration, as I say here, indicates how the Bible received its authority. Canonicity has to do with the acceptance and recognition of the books. Now see, again, this is different from a Roman Catholic premise. Because Roman Catholics talk about canonizing saints and all that, you know, they use the word canon there. But, but the Roman Catholic Church determines what's in the Bible. And in 1546, they said 66 books is not enough. In 1546, they added some more books to the Bible. 1546. We'll see that. You going to talk about that later? Yeah. Okay. Just, just that. Just a second. So, uh, inspiration tells how the Bible received its authority. And 
canonicity, of course, deals with this acceptance and recognition. Let's talk about this uh, Old Testament canon here. Um, yes, the Old Testament canon, page uh, on D on your notes there. As I said, uh, we're trying to determine what books should be in the Bible. What books should be in the canon of Scripture? Let's talk about the Old Testament first. What books should be in the Old Testament? <coughs> well, basically, there's a lot we could say here, but we can say the church accepted the Bible of Judaism or the Bible of Jesus. Jesus believed in the same Old Testament that we believe in. And we can somewhat demonstrate that. For instance, um, <coughs> Jesus put his stamp of approval on the 39 books of the Old Testament. Jesus put his stamp of approval. Now, we know that in one sense because he, he never got up and said, hey, you know, that book of Exodus, I don't think that should be in the Bible. Jesus, during his ministry, he never said anything about the Bible. He never said, there are some books in that Old Testament that shouldn't be there. He never said that. He accepted the Bible of Judaism. And he made statements that indicate that. Here's one of his statements. He said to them, Luke 24, 44, This is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled about me that's written in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. And with that statement, he's referring to the whole Old Testament. You say, how is that? Well, because this is the way the Old Testament looked in Jesus' day. This is the way it looks in Jewish Bibles today. If I had my Hebrew Bible here, you would see it's, made, it, it's divided exactly like this. That Hebrew Bible has not 39 books, but 24 books. But they're the exact same books we have. They're just divided up a little differently. It's divided into three sections called the Law or the Torah in Hebrew, Torah, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the writings, the Kethavim. So when Jews look at the Bible, they look at three sections. The Torah, the law, the writings, and the, I mean, the, the prophets, and the Kethavim, the writings. So the Torah is just like what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books. But then they have the former prophets and the latter prophets. And then they have the writings, poetical books, roles, in historical books. Now, they only have 24 books, but notice some things. Look at that number 13, the 12. What is that? What's that 12? Minor prophets, isn't it? It's the 12 minor prophets. So they've got one book, and we got 12 books. So there's 11 more right there, you see, that we would have to add to that 24 number. So in the Hebrew Bible, they just count those 12 as one book. Even though they're all there, they just count as one. And when you look at things like Chronicles, they don't say First and Second Chronicles, just Chronicles. And then Ezra and Nehemiah, number 23, are the one book. You look at things like 8 and 9, Samuel and Kings. They don't divide it up into First Samuel, Second Samuel. So they have the exact same material we have. Our English Bibles are translated from the Hebrew Old Testament, Hebrew Aramaic Old Testament, same books. But what was Jesus referring to? Jesus says in that statement, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. We see the law of Moses, 
We see the prophets, but the Psalms. Notice the first book in the Ketuvim. What is it? Psalms. Psalms. Psalms was often used to stand for that section. So people would say, the law, the prophets, and the, they didn't say the Ketuvim, they would say the, the Psalms. So Jesus is kind of referring to the whole Old Testament there. Another text that where Jesus says something like this is uh, Matthew 23, 35. Matthew 23:35. He says, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now we know what book of the Bible that Abel's in. We just were studying that, right? That's in Genesis. <coughs> but what book of the Bible is Berechiah, you know, what book was he murdered in? Well, he was murdered in number 24 there, Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles where he was murdered. So Jesus is saying, you know, you have killed all these righteous people from Genesis to Revelation. That's what we'd say, Genesis to Revelation. But in the Old Testament, you would say from Genesis to Chronicles. That's what he's saying. From Genesis to Chronicles, and he says, from Abel to Berechiah, in his Bible, that was from Genesis to Chronicles. So what we're saying is, Jesus put his stamp of approval. He never questioned the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, and the church accepted that same books of the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament canon, of course, as I say here on E, the Holy Spirit guided the church over a period of several hundred years so that only the inspired books were included in the New Testament canon. How did they do that? They used a number of principles that they looked at. They're trying to identify which books are uh, worthy to be included. The most important principle was the principle they called apostolicity. It comes from that word apostle, you know. They were looking for books that were written by an apostle or someone associated with an apostle. That's why we call it apostolicity. Someone associated with an apostle. Because Paul wrote 13, but Paul had an associate named Mark. And he was also associated with Peter. And he wrote the Gospel of Mark. And Paul had another associate named Luke. And he wrote the Gospel of Luke. So they were looking for books like that that were associated. When Paul wrote his books, they were accepted immediately by everyone in the church... The Gospels were accepted immediately. And then over time, others were accepted. And one of the things they used to look at was, are these books orthodox books? Are they in conformity with what Paul said and what the Gospels said? And they would use that to judge others. Eventually, the Holy Spirit led the church to the 27 books we have. Well, how does that help you and me as believers today? By the 4th century... There was a consensus that these 27 books are the same books. So, that and, and nobody in the nobody doubted this in the first century, the second century, the third century, the fourth century, and the year 500 they believed this, 600, 700, 800, 900. And remember, it wasn't until 1546 the Council of Trent of the Roman Catholic Church said, "Nope, we're going to add some more books to the Bible." That took a long time. But for those first 1,500 years, there was always consensus about this. But how do we know? How are you and I, how and you? How can you and I know 
that these books are the books that we should have. As I say here on our notes, our own individual certainty that the 66 books of the Bible are the Word of God comes through the work of the Spirit in our hearts and minds called the witness of the Spirit. So there's a technical term for this called the witness of the Spirit. It's a part of the doctrine of illumination. The Holy Spirit witnesses with us that what we're reading is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit that God gives to us when we're born again, regenerated, become believers, that work of the Spirit causes us to accept the Scriptures as truth. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. So we can't expect our unsaved friends to accept the Bible. Now we have to give them the Bible and pray that the Spirit will prick their hearts and create faith and cause them to believe. And then they'll believe, you know. That's what we're doing. So it's the Word and the Spirit. But this person does not naturally accept the things that come, but considers them foolish and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. So it takes the Holy Spirit that we have working in us who causes us as we read Scripture to believe it and say, yes, this is the Word of God. I believe this. I accept this. Now, we don't know much when we get saved. You know, we get saved, we accept Christ. Maybe when somebody gives us a Bible, we get a Bible, we start reading the Bible. As we read the Bible, we don't know that those 66 books are the 66 books. We just start reading the Bible. But the Spirit works with us. And as we read those pages in the, in the Bible, the Spirit confirms with what we're reading that this is the Word of God. And we come to accept it as the Word of God. That happens to all of us. Remember all those churches that our pastor mentioned this morning? The Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Church of God of Cleveland, Tennessee. <laughs> There's a lot of differences. But it's not over the Bible. All those churches relate to 66 books. See, the Holy Spirit works in all these Christians to confirm that these are the works. So the work... That, that happened in the first centuries, the first few centuries, that led the church to assemble and recognize these 66 books. And it works with us today as believers. We come to believe. We come to have confidence that this is the Bible, these 66 books. As I say, real certainty that the Bible is indeed the Word of God comes through this witness or the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. So did the church get together? All the people of the church churches got together and decided that this is God's work, so this will be included. Who was the church? Well, the church was just made up of individual believers of churches and churches throughout the Roman Empire. A group of men in each one, is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, we're talking about pastors and leaders now. So what we're saying is there wasn't really any real debate except about some books, like Hebrews. There was some debate about Hebrews through the years because... The author of Hebrews doesn't identify himself. Who is the author of Hebrews? And so there was some question about that. But gradually, as church councils met, 100, 200, 300, they came to recognize these are the 66 books. So some people had some questions. They didn't say, well, that shouldn't be in the Bible. I'm just not sure. Gradually, those questions those, 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 uh, those questions faded away over time. Thank you. That's what happened historically. So, 
the books of the Bible, the Old Testament is 39 books, and there's the order in the English canon. You're well familiar with it. You've got Pentateuch, history, poetry, prophecy, major and minor, and so forth. You're familiar with that, 39 books in the Old Testament. We've got the New Testament. We've got 27 books. And you're familiar with that order, too. Gospels, Acts, the epistles. Paul's got 13. Then you've got the general epistles, so-called, and the apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Extra-canonical books. Why were some books rejected from inclusion in the Bible? Some books were rejected by Protestants, like us, but accepted by the Roman Catholic Church. These are books called, generally called the Old Testament Apocrypha. I say here, the term Apocrypha refers to a group of 15 books related to the canonical books of the Old Testament, but which were judged by the early church not to be inspired and thus rejected from the Bible. Now, these books were around at the time of the New Testament. All these books were known at the time of the New Testament. Uh, if you look at the date of the Apocrypha there, uh, I have the date down there as between 250 B.C. and 50 B.C. So all these books were known at the time of the New Testament. These were books written by Jews. They're Jewish literature. And they're books that relate to the Old Testament. They relate to events and stories in the Old Testament. They're about Old Testament. Now, this is not surprising. People write books about the Bible. You know? Commentaries? Yeah. Okay. They write commentaries and all kinds of Christian books. And, you know, my library is filled with them. The pastor's library is filled with them. You have probably some Christian books in your house, you know. So people wrote things about the Bible. And these books are books that are basically about the Bible, things about the Bible. And there are all kinds of different things about the Bible. They have kind of strange names. It says First Ezra, Second Ezra. Ezra is the Greek name for Ezra, so it's like First Ezra, Second Ezra, Tobit, Judith, additions to Esther. There are all kinds of uh, things here. There's all kinds of interesting stuff here. It's not all bad. It's not all false doctrine. There's some false doctrines in here called. But it's not all bad. Some of it's very interesting stuff. Um, there's all kinds of literature, all kinds of different types of literature. There's historical literature. That first Ezra is the Greek for first Ezra. And mostly it's just the canonical first Ezra rewritten in Greek. It's, it's pretty much the same thing. There's wisdom literature. That's not Ecclesiastes, that's Ecclesiasticus. But it's like the word Ecclesiastes, like the book. It's like Proverbs. It's little Proverbs. And many of the Proverbs are good. If we had time, I could read some of them to you. There's religious romance, like Tobit, kind of like Ruth a little bit. There's apocalyptic, like Revelation, prophetic, like prophecy books. Baruch is supposed to be, was in the Bible, is the scribe to Jeremiah, remember? So... Now, the important thing to know is these are Jewish books written by Jews. The Jews never accept them in the Bible. The Jews do not accept these books. And Christians didn't until 1546, until the Roman Catholic Church accepted some of these books. There's legendary additions to the Old Testament. 
So some of these people, these Jews, decided to make a few additions. Remember the book of Esther? One of the strange things about the book of Esther is it does not contain the name God. It doesn't have the word God in the book of Esther. God's not mentioned in the book of Esther. One time. Well, the Hebrew text has 167 verses. The Apocrypha is a rewriting of Esther with an additional 107 verses and 49 references to God. So some Jews came along and said, you know, we've got to clean this up a little bit. We've got to get some God stuff in this book. So here's an example of what they did. Here's Esther, Esther 2.20 in the Bible. Now Esther had not received her kindred or her people, not revealed her kindred or her people as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was bought, brought, uh, brought up by him. Now here's 2.20 in the Apocrypha version. Esther had not disclosed her country. Such were the instructions of Mordecai, but she was not to fear God and keep his law. But she was to fear God and keep his laws, just as she had done when she was with him. So Esther did not change her mode of life. So see, she was to fear God. So the book of Esther is rewritten in the Apocrypha and these additions to add these names of God. Some Jewish person did that. Well, the Jews have never accepted that. You don't you don't find the Apocrypha at a synagogue or anything like that. You have all kinds of additions like that. Uh, you have additions to, there's something called Bell and Dragon. You have all kinds of additions to Daniel. All kinds of stories about Daniel, extra stories. They're interesting stories. They're interesting stories. Let me just tell you one quick one real quick here. The story about Bell. Bell is a, uh, a god. He's the god Marduk, the Babylonian god Marduk. And one time the king comes to to Daniel, there some, some people, some priests of, of Bel, Bel come to the king and say, "Listen, Daniel does not worship Bel." And the king comes to Daniel and says, "Hey, why don't you worship Bel?" And Daniel says, "Well, he's just an idol. He's not a living god." And the king says, "No, Bel is a living god because we put food in his temple, and Bel eats that food." So Daniel says, "Okay, let's let's check this out." So the priest of Bel, what they would do is they would put food in this temple of Bel every day. They would lock the doors. The next morning you'd come in, the food would be gone. And that would prove that Bel was alive and he was eating the food. Well, what was happening was the priest of Bel had a secret passage. They would sneak in at night with their kids and family, eat all the food, and then the food would be gone. So Daniel, he has the priest put the food in. Then he makes them all leave. He goes in and sprinkles ashes on the floor, all over the floor. The next day, they come in, the food is gone, and Daniel says, look at the uh, floor. See those footprints in there? That's that's the guys coming in at night through the secret passage. So they kill all the priests of Baal and their families. It's, a, it's an interesting story, but it's not true. <laughs> so it's not really should be in the Bible. Uh there's false teaching, unfortunately. Second Maccabees talks about praying for the dead. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, he would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. <coughs> Therefore, he made atonement for the dead, so they might be delivered from their sins. So praying for the dead, making atonement for the dead, this is what the Roman Catholic Church believes. So this is a helpful verse. Good works. Now, there's nothing wrong with good works, but the Roman Catholic Church believes in the meritorious. Works are meritorious. 
that good works will justify you. And here is Ecclesiasticus, or Ben Sirach says, those who honor their father atone for sin. So good works can atone, just like the death of Christ can atone for sin. So that's the problem, is that these books contain, they, they contain um, false teaching. And so the Apocrypha were never accepted into the canon of the New Testament. They were never, and I've listed the reasons here why they were never accepted. Uh, no council, the early church accepted them. They contain heretical teachings and so forth. Uh, some of the things, some of the teachings fall short of, of uh, biblical standards. There's a lot of reasons here, but the truth is the Jews did not accept them. Is that the main point right there? There's the main point, the Jews. Yeah. See, we have Christian literature. Has anybody ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim's Progress is a great work of, of Christian fiction. And it's, you know, it's one of the most read books. We, we're not going to put it in the Bible. It's recommended you read Pilgrim's Progress. It's a good book. It's a very spiritually helpful book for Pilgrim's Progress. Is. But we're not going to put it in the Bible. So these were these some of these books were helpful to Jews and helpful to Christians. They read them, but they, did, they, they shouldn't be put in the Bible. They were only put in in 1546 by the Roman Catholic Church as a reaction against the Protestant Reformation. Yes? Was the What's that? Was the Not as originally given, but later copies of the Septuagint. I'll have to talk about that when we get to the Septuagint. But not as originally written. Uh, it was not. The Septuagint was written about the same time as these books, but not the old, like the Dead Sea Scrolls don't have any part of all right, we better stop here because I've gone over here. Thank you so much for today. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.